0: Hey, everybody, it's Robert. Thanks for tuning in to Mentors for Military, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Kyle Neal. Hey, guys, Kyle. How are y'all? So we're sitting at Pearl and Pine Brewery once again. I really appreciate these guys for loaning us their facility and allowing us to come in here and tape our podcast episode. So if you're ever in Sonoy, Georgia, where they filmed uh, The Walking Dead, make sure you come by here, check the place out, have a cup of beer. Say hello to Sam and Matt. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, mentioned the, uh, the podcast and that's the reason why you're here. So we're joined today with somebody, I, I think we've been trying to coordinate this podcast now for. Years. Years. It seems like. <laughs> and, um, so we're joined by Dr. Kate payton Thank you so much for coming on the show and joining us here all the way from Montana.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a long time coming.
0: Where is home though? It, you mentioned Colorado. You've mentioned Montana.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's. I don't know that I really have like a place that I call home. It's just kind of. I've. I've always been a little bit of a wanderer. I grew up actually not that far from here. I grew up in Florida. No way. And my we used to vacation at, near Callaway mm-hmm. Gardens and and. Uh, um, red top mountain and, um, pine mountain and stuff. So we, you know, we grew up in the Southeast. Yeah. I have family in North Carolina, South Carolina, all over Georgia and Florida. So, um, home originally was here for me, but then my family just moved around a ton. My dad was in the military, but that wasn't really, he was out by the time we came along and we just moved from, you know, all over the state of Florida. We lived in Texas for a long time. I went to school in Virginia for a little while. I lived in Colorado, uh, montana alabama even i'm just yeah just kind of going where the wind blows wow. i guess it's got gypsy um,
2: blood Rob. Yeah, yeah a little
1: bit of gypsy blood for sure but uh I, you know i love the west i love the mountain west and that's that's really where if i had to pick a home it would be like more regional it would just kind of be out out west in the in the rockies
0: so when you say florida where about in florida
1: uh, i was actually born in vero beach on okay. the east coast and then we lived in naples for a number of years um tampa for a number of years gainesville is where i went to school so i was a gator for undergrad and grad school yep <laughs> <laughs> i usually take some heat from that one
2: that's um, pretty gross guys um lsu
1: and then i have family in uh, miami which is where my parents met and lived most of their lives right. and then uh, family in tallahassee too so
0: when you end up going into uh, to college and stuff, you end up getting, at, at the end at least, obviously you're a doctor, uh, of a pretty good degree. So what led you down that path? What made you go down that path of, of studying medicine?
1: Um. Man, I was the kind of kid that loved everything. So, all of the subjects, I was just like, I want to learn more. And I was very, um, very nerdy, lots of books. I had like neuroscience for dummies when I was like nine years old or something. (laughs) Um, I just loved science and and anything that um, I just found intriguing. And so, science was always. The the one thing that I dug into, and that was a kind of a common thread from when I was young into into school, and I had no idea what I wanted to be. I, when I was younger, I thought maybe veterinary medicine, and so my undergraduate degree, believe it or not, is zoology and French, which has nothing. French. Yeah, I know, it has nothing to do with what I do now. But I thought, hey, these are interesting. You know, my parents were like, follow what you like, and it doesn't lead to a great career sometimes, but <laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> Um, And then when I was graduating, so I moved around um, my freshman year, I was at the University of Virginia. My sophomore year is at the University of Texas. And my junior year I was at the University of Florida. It's a long story as to why I bounced around. But I went to school, summer school, every time I switched schools. And um, by the time I was like halfway through my junior year, I was talking to the counselor and they were like, um, you know, you have enough credits, you're going to graduate at the end of your next semester. And I was like, shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I, I'm not ready. I thought I had another year. I
0: have to be an adult now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, wait a
1: minute. I'm like 19 years old, 20 years old. So um, I had a physiology professor who was like, Kate, you're really good at this. Like, you. it clearly makes sense to you. Neuroscience and physiology are what you're good at you should pursue that and do a graduate degree and i was like well i thought i wanted to you know go get a clinical medical degree and he was like no 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 you like that's for you know that's for other people people like you need to go do research and i was like i I had never done research before i didn't know that i really wanted to do it but i was like if i could study this and like really like spend time with this material that i love so much that sounds awesome and medical school to me was like study memorize purge the information, study, memorize, it wasn't, I wanted to spend time and think about these things. So, um, I actually was really encouraged to go get a PhD, having no idea what that entailed and applied, got a scholarship to to go at the university of Florida. Since I was already there, it kind of, made sense. I made really good connections to professors and
0: really good medical school as well. Really
1: good medical school, excellent veterinary school. I ended up teaching as I was going through my graduate degree in neurophysiology there. um, I ended up actually being able to teach in both the medical school and the veterinary school i taught anatomy and ta different courses and it was really cool i had incredible experiences there and i kind of always have gone back and forth with like this desire to pursue a clinical degree and then my love of you know like the research side and i don't know that that's ever going to go away i mean there are multiple times that i just started the applications to medical school thinking i wanted to go do clinical work and then withdrew them because I was like, no, that's not the right path for me. I'm not, you know, but, but it's my love of working with people and it's my love of solving problems that, um, per, you know, pulls me to that. I like to do the hands-on stuff and, um, have a direct relationship with people. And sometimes in research, you're far from the people that you're helping. Yeah. So,
2: um, that's funny. Cause in my experience, like neurologist or neurophysiologist or anybody, they're kind of like the, the weirdos, the doctors, like the ones that. <laughs> You know what I mean. You can say it. You don't look like well, that's all I'm saying. It's like you're not like the typical neurologist or neurophysiologist that I've seen.
1: Yeah, no. I um I don't really fit into very many boxes. I, I uh I confuse people. I tell I tell folks that I speak hippie, scientist, and knuckle dragger equally well. Yeah. And that's like I'm nice. fluent in all of those. Nice. And I just don't I mean, I think that's why I had such a hard time with my research, because I had so many interests and ways of relating to people or ideas that never really quite fit the the niche that you're supposed to create for yourself in academia. It was like, I don't wanna just pigeonhole myself into this one thing or this box. It doesn't make sense for who I am. Um, so I've, I've never, I've been like kind of a rogue researcher <laughs> throughout my career.
2: <laughs> so I guess the University of Florida and the doctorate program taught you how to speak nerd. Yeah. What taught you to speak hippie?
1: Um, that's a great question. I think there's something inherent in me maybe that's a little bit of a free spirit maybe it's the gypsy way that we grew up my parents were also hippies um at heart even though now they're very like conservative and um sort of uh they they went through a period of time where that was like you know hippies are you know those are those other people we don't you know like we would never associate with those people it's you know very uh very different but as they're getting older they're kind of going back to their hippie roots so part of me wonders maybe it's some of some of the nurture kind of things that i learned from them and maybe it's just like part of our family you know was our, there
0: ever a uh, volkswagen van and oh, bare yeah. feet in this story somewhere? Oh, yeah, yeah. was it
1: <laughs> my parents had yeah they had the uh well they didn't they didn't do the, the volkswagen van with like the peace sign on it but um they were definitely little flower children my mom made all of their own like wedding clothes with flowers in it, and uh, you know, my dad had long hair and played a guitar and wrote poetry and music, and
0: um, yeah, it's pretty funny. Solid. Yeah. <laughs> so when you came out of the program. And what did you get your degree in first off? So, um,
1: so technically, uh, it's it's physiology. Our focus, our lab was neurophysiology. So it's the the study of kind of how the, the brain influences and controls physiology. So you learn, like in medical school, I took all of those physiology courses. Neuroscience is a organ system that is part of physiology. But we looked at, so we, we studied all of that, but then we looked at really taking a deep dive into the brain and the brain aspects of physiology and how it controls every body system. And our emphasis in our lab and what we studied most was the respiratory system. So kind of the brain breath body connection. Um, and that was, you know, you can relate that to the hippie roots too with breath work. And um, I just got a, I just
2: got <laughs> the video of Winhoff breathing in my mind right there. Yeah.
0: Like, yeah. Yeah. Like how you survive 20
2: minutes <laughs> in negative 20 water or whatever? I don't even know how cold it is, but yeah. like that, yeah. you know, just, Breathe it breathes it out man yeah
1: that plus cold plunges it's all the rage plunges, these that's days. It. yeah just, that's
2: what joe rogan <laughs> told me anyway oh, okay <laughs> everyone's <you>. doing it
0: <laughs> well and, and i think you know that people understand that we have nerves and the brain and the whole bit but i don't think a lot of people understand more like the interconnectivity and the jellyfish kind of thing where you got the brain <laughs> and then all the tentacles that come down and and mm-hmm. how important it is that i don't know like a lot of people we're going to get into the your, uh your trip down to peru and stuff like that but a lot of people the connectivity of the human body is just amazing yeah. as a tool itself. Uh, yeah. You know how it all functions. It's very interesting, and of course, at the heart of this is not just the heart, but the lungs and then the brain.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and that was. I think what drove my passion for neurophysiology was the fascination with the brain. And I always look at neuroscience and what we know about it is it sort of reminds me of where physics was right before we discovered quantum physics. Like we think we know a lot, but I think we're like so far behind Mm -hmm. in really understanding what's going on. And maybe there's going to be a breakthrough in some way where we're going to be like, "Whoa, we know nothing about this or what we thought we knew was all wrong. Um, So that's kind of exciting about neuroscience. But I, I always was interested in it, one from a physiological standpoint, but the other, I mean, the way that our brain works really colors everything about our experience. And everything from emotions to our perspectives on the world to how we feel, what we like, what we don't like. And so studying that and understanding the physiological influences and that bi-directional relationship between the body and the brain and the brain and body was interesting but also from like a neurotrauma standpoint well what happens if it's injured then what does that mean physiologically what does that mean for your, your experience of life because we are sensory beings and that's your nervous system um, so if things start to get damaged or injured what does that mean um, so I, I started to pivot away I loved the brain breath body stuff but when I would finish my degree, I wanted to pivot a bit and do something different. Again, this is why I was a bad scientist, but I didn't stay in my my field. It was like, you know, man, I'm, I'm fascinated by neurotrauma. I want to study traumatic brain injury. And so that's part of my postdoc work in Denver. After I left UF, I went to Denver, um, was looking at traumatic brain injury and inflammation and seeing if we could deal with that inflammation cascade after an injury to maybe promote better outcomes. And again, these were animal studies. So
0: can you go a little bit more deeper into the traumatic brain injury aspect of things? Because I mean, traumatic brain injury could happen as a kid falling off your bike and hitting your head or something, or, um, you know, even there are certain aspects of it of, I guess, of lower degrees of, you know, the waves of music and the sound and those types of things that can even, mess with the brain and so my pee brain of how I understand it uh is that your brain's kind of floating in some liquid and then when something comes in and it impacts it in a way there may be some form of scar tissue that forms or things that it's doing to protect itself and I don't even know if I'm right on the subject or not but
1: yeah yeah you're pretty close I mean I like to describe it as um like a plate of jello. If you could imagine like a giant plate of jello and you could kind of move the plate around and see how flimsy it is and how it moves. That's kind of the consistency of brain tissue. And it's, it's encapsulated by these different layers that are protective. And there's a fluid around that, the cerebrospinal fluid that cushions it like airbags kind of. And it also, there's a lot more that the cerebrospinal fluid does. Um, and that's sort of the structure inside of the skull which is obviously bony and there's um, a lot of protrusions that can be um, sharp but again you have these protective layers and there's a uh, one of these three layers that cover the brain is actually pretty dang thick so it's you know moving around normally is not you're not going to have damage um, but you could imagine since it's mostly water um, that if you have any kind of, So there's two different types of injuries that we talk about that have relevance to the military. So one is is blunt trauma, and that's the kind you think about with sports or hitting your head against something or something hitting your head where there's a force applied to the skull, and then your your brain kind of moves within the skull, and you have sort of this um, initial insult where that tissue hits the skull, and maybe there's some damage there, but there's always that rebound. So you think about the jello and how it jiggles back and forth when you move the plate. Well, that's kind of how it works in the brain. So your, your, your brain might slam into one side of the skull, but it's going to rebound into the other. And so you kind of have this coup contra coup um, injury. And that's a physical um, you know, blunt trauma kind of injury. But then you have blast trauma. And again, because the brain is mostly water, you've got places in the brain where the density of the material, of the neurons and what makes up the brain, some parts are, are way more dense than others. And so when you send a, like an overpressure blast wave through something that's water with different densities, the, the wave vibrates the water at a certain frequency, but when it hits denser material, the vibration or the frequency that it vibrates changes and shifts. And so you don't have a uniform vibration and where there's a shift in density, sometimes that vibrational change can cause shearing and that can cause almost like tearing of the neurons and the axons and all of the, the cells in the brain. Looks like there's a question.
2: That it would be like... The broken connections of the brain being able to speak to other parts of the brain connect. Correct, like when that happens.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay,
2: so if like for the layman's ear, like I got put on prenatal vitamins after my TBI. Okay. She said something about folic acid. It helps yeah. bridge gaps in the brain. Yeah. Would that be the reason for that? We try to heal something like that as best as you can through vitamins or whatever. Not saying vitamins are the
1: sure. They they are essential for mm-hmm. um for neuronal health and and synaptic signaling. But it's it is definitely more complicated than that. So w- when we talk about injuries, I want you guys to think about um, what happens in your brain you can you can liken it to an injury like say you cut your arm mm-hmm. There is a normal process with an injury where you have inflammation, you have recruitment to that area of immune cells, they clean up all the garbage and the dead cells and the torn tissue, they get rid of any bacteria, and then they remodel the tissue and you're probably gonna have a scar, but eventually it's like, oh, I'm healed, right? Like There's probably a scar, but there's it's a healed tissue. Well, the same thing happens in the brain. So we talk about injuries and inflammation Those things are normal, and that's good. It's part of a healthy process of healing. And most people who get some kind of brain injury are gonna heal okay, just like you would heal an arm. And you, you know, when people hear TBI, they think inevitable damage, inevitable problems, inevitable consequences that are gonna be long-term and affect me for the rest of my life. And that's, I wanna disprove that because i it's a scary thing and it doesn't always turn out that way. However, the thing with inflammation and brain injury, and, you know, this this talk about supplements or vitamins, one of the things that can happen is when you have that inflammatory response and your brain is like, oh, shit, alarms, you know, we got to clean up this tissue and, and remodel it and, and make sure everything's good moving forward, that inflammation actually doesn't subside. So normally it peaks and then it kind of dissipates over time. Sometimes that inflammation persists. And the inflammation persisting is what causes then more damage over time, can cause swelling, but it can also cause continued damage because you have all of these uh, the, some of these immune cells release things that can, da- like free radicals, that can damage tissue um, over time, and then that's what seems. We think that this chronic inflammation is what leads to long-term damage that doesn't seem to resolve. And so, if you can address the chronic inflammation and hopefully fix that, then hopefully this the the symptoms associated with that will go away. The problem is, um, you know, in order to heal properly, we've got to be taking excellent care of ourselves. And you think about the military. When people get TBIs, what are they doing? They're probably drinking. They're sleep deprived. They're chronically moving. You know, just tons of intense physical stress. Um, you know, they may be taking uppers and downers. They may be, you know. All of these different things. Their gut health is probably super poor. What are they eating? You know, tornadoes
2: and, and monster injuries. I mean, I'm, you, you know, like you sleep. already
1: have a baseline inflammatory state in your body. So when you have a brain injury and you're treating your body like this, you're already probably dealing with some baseline inflammation uh in the brain not to mention the gut and elsewhere so when you have an injury like that you're not really giving yourself a fighting chance at recovering well so this is a point i want to stress to people taking care of yourself and doing you know doing the right thing to um stay healthy is also preventative so if you do get a tbi you might recover better it's like don't wait till you get a tbi to turn you know to, to take care of it it's like if you can stay ahead of that, that would be ideal. But I mean, the culture is what it is. So like
2: cutting out inflammatory foods like dairy or gluten or something like that, or alcohol or all the things that everybody loves, you mm-hmm. know, like okay. white Russians and, and <laughs> you know, chips and stuff. You know what I mean? Like all the right. good stuff. But, yeah. um, so you're saying that that is like kind of like a preemptive measure that you can do to help in, in the uh, event that you do get a traumatic brain injury or, whatever. Like if you're already like cutting down on inflammation across the body, Mm -hmm. it can,
1: it can be a huge, yeah, it can be a a really important way to, um, create a more anti-inflammatory state. And the gut is actually, I mean, people talk about the gut microbiome and gut health and nobody really, they're like, well, what is it really? And like, is it really doing anything? And, And the truth is it is, um, you think about that as a barrier to, um, you know, you, what you consume, you're putting into your mouth and it goes into your body and it's full of whatever, bacteria, whatever. You don't want that to get into your bloodstream. So your gut is actually a barrier from the external world to your internal world and it's selective about what things are absorbed and what gets moved across into your blood. When you have things that inflame the gut, so it could be like maybe a gluten intolerance or dairy or alcohol, is the, it, that affects everybody like this, where you normally have these super tight junctions in between these epithelial cells in your gut, and that's a healthy gut. You may have heard the term leaky gut. That happens when these tight junctions loosen due to inflammatory reactions in the gut and that could be due to a food intolerance or an infection of some kind or something like that. And then what happens is because of that, now you have things moving across into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there and causes inflammation. So if you can repair your gut and... Um, address gut health through eating lots of fiber and fruits and vegetables, um, staying away from things that, you know, you can feel the difference that make you worse, um, that can be really helpful. And it's bi-directional. So you guys, I don't know if anybody, if, if you guys have experienced this, but if you've ever had a traumatic brain injury, sometimes you have... Inflammation in the gut afterwards because there's a um, this vagus nerve runs from your gut to your brain and sends information both ways and so sometimes the inflammation in the brain can actually cause an inflammatory response in the gut and cause leaky gut and so if you if you address this from either end of the spectrum you're doing yourself a huge favor so anything to promote um, you know kind of a more anti-inflammatory state in the body whether it's through supplements diet. Um, getting enough rest, staying away from things that cause problems. Like those are, it's, it's not exciting and it's not, um, it's not like a cool, like silver bullet, but this is stuff that it's good to to implement over time.
0: So getting back to the, the dispel of, you know, long-term chronic TBI challenges is going to affect you. I mean, um, I'm married to a nurse and we've got friends that are in the health space and stuff. And, you know, I have bad hearing so that, oh, that's a sensory thing. Oh, TBI since, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. all of these sensory things. Oh, God, you're going to end up with Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting fed through a tube or whatever. (laughs) You know what I mean? it's like, uh, seriously, I mean, they, you know, there's people who like go to the extreme. I think what you're stating, if I heard you correctly, is. There are early symptoms um, that you may be experiencing after a TBI that should be indicators as to whether or not it is going to be chronic. Is that would that be a correct statement, um, or is it something that you might not know that it's going to end up being that challenge because the signs may not be strong enough uh, to know that it may be long-term inf- uh, inflammation in there? Uh,
1: yeah, unfortunately, sometimes you don't know. Um, I think sometimes the immediate, the immediate um, period after a brain injury is is you're gonna feel off and that's pretty normal um, but it should resolve and when it doesn't or it resolves and then it gets worse again that's where it you should you should be questioning it because I think a lot of times people you know we grew up like we all grew up like oh you, you just got your bell rung or you took a dirt nap like get up and you know, take some Motrin and keep keep moving or whatever whatever the case, yeah. you know like yeah, that right the Motrin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> drink, take water, knee, take drink Mo- water, take, water, take, yeah, take exactly.
2: Motrin, yeah, uh, exactly, yeah, keep going, yeah, yeah, so.
1: exactly. Um, and I think we've because of that we've learned to overlook um, some of the stuff that's going on. And also, I mean, let's face it, there are some times when you might've had a TBI blast, especially where you weren't really able to stop. And even though you might've noticed certain things that were off in the subsequent days or weeks, you were like, well, I don't really have a choice because if I stop and get help, I'll be off this mission, off the team. I'm going to, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And so a lot of times people might've known something was going on, but pushed it out of their mind, just to keep going, uh, you see this in athletes. I work with um, some folks from the NFL, and, and you see it in, in, in those guys all the time. Of you know, they're on all kinds of pain meds, and it's, they just have to keep performing. And and that's that's a question of um, you know, can, can you document it? Can you write it down? Can you pay attention? And then when you do have the space, if you can't do something about it in the in the moment. Um, make sure that you're keeping track of your progress. If you're getting better, that's a good thing. If you're staying the same or getting worse and it's impairing your quality of life or your ability to do your job or relate to your friends or your spouse or your kids, like th- these are big issues. And that's where things should be looked at thoroughly. So with, with somebody who knows what they're doing, because a lot of times you'll go into a physician and if they don't have a good uh, understanding or background in traumatic brain injury, they'll look at you and they'll be like, You know, you're young and otherwise healthy, and uh, you know, or or you're depressed. You're probably depressed. You know, let's get you on some antidepressants, or you know, maybe maybe you just need some testosterone, or you know. And they kind of just treat the symptoms. And
2: did you read my medical record before you came here? (laughs) Because I've had those conversations. I've read many like it. I'm sure. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and the endocrine dysfunction with traumatic brain injury is real. So that's something that really people should be aware of uh, men and women both and if you think
2: you've had a traumatic brain injury go get an endocrine panel pulled now please yes your vitamin d levels are probably below 30 i mean everybody's
1: everybody's i'm sure these days i don't know anyone who has like really healthy d D levels unfortunately but
2: my wife's like over an 80 oh wow over an 80 she her doctor was like you shouldn't have this much vitamin d and she's like i take like 50,000. Okay, units. but she has to take,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. she
2: takes the dropper. Like okay. she, she makes it happen. Yeah, right. Okay.
1: But I. yeah, I think, um, it, you know, in, in, when we say we're talking about endocrine function and hormones, I don't just mean testosterone. There are upstream hormones that are important to look at. And you need the whole picture because you can start tinkering with physiology in ways that um, are supportive of your body getting back on track, or there are ways that you can tinker with it that sort of shut down your body's ability to naturally make this stuff. And you wanna make sure that you're doing the right thing. So again, talk to a, you know, an endocrinologist or somebody who one will listen and trust that you're, what you're saying is, is true and then um, advise you appropriately.
0: So you're a young soldier, sailor, airman, marine, or whatever, you're in the military, and um, you feel like something must have happened. I mean, you know it, most of the yeah. guys. I mean, you're a mortarman or whatever, the yeah, chronic. Yeah, trust it, you know. yeah. Um, what, what can be done? I mean, that's one suggestion there, but what should they be looking for? I mean, what are, the, what are the, some of the signs, I guess, that they mm-hmm. should be headache, um, yep. fatigue, or, or you know mm-hmm. what, what types of symptoms?
1: I mean, everybody's gonna be a little bit different, especially depending on the type of injury and, and where maybe their brain was injured. Um, I think the very obvious signs are, um, fatigue is a huge one, ability to concentrate and pay attention. Like if you used to have a fine memory and, and you were able to focus and all of a sudden after an injury, you're just like, I, I mean, this happened to me, I've had some pretty bad TBIs myself and I was actually teaching at a medical school when I received one and, um, it was, I did a face, well, I was mountain biking in New Zealand and um, had a bad crash and went face first into a tree stump and had 25 sutures in my face out, like just, it was bad. And I came back and I had to teach medical students physiology and I'm staring at my PowerPoints and none of it makes sense. And I'm reading and rereading things and I'm like, oh my, you know, things like that where you're like, this is clearly a problem. What is going on? Um, so, you know, memory, ability to concentrate, fatigue is a big one where, you know, after an injury like that, you could be walking up a flight of stairs and be gassed. Um, so, pay attention to things like that. Mood shifts. This is a big one, especially in the more chronic phases. You'll see people who used to be super happy-go-lucky, kind of calm, chill people turn into like anger, irritability, um, impulsivity issues. So sometimes people end up becoming addicts to something after a TBI or the ability to um, not become addicted to something starts to diminish and that impulsivity can play a huge part in that Um, sleep disturbances are another one depression, you know, all of all of these things that you know yourself better than anyone, you know what life has felt like for you. And if things feel different enough that you're like this is not normal this is not me trust that don't don't listen to people who are like ah it's nothing like trust it it's always worth the time to go explore and the the sooner you can get ahead of it the better off you're going to be so if you're exploring options talking to physicians um and people are, are discounting you, or not taking you seriously, keep trying until you find somebody who does. Because you're gonna encounter that. I mean, we all, unfortunately, are gonna encounter that, whether it's a you know, physical health doctor or a mental health doctor. Um, it, it, we just sometimes, it's like any profession, there are great ones and there are terrible ones. So just keep, keep looking until you find somebody.
0: The uh, soft community, I mean, just by the nature of the fact that they go on so many deployments and um, that compounds the issue because, of course, they're going to be exposed to these types of conditions more and more. I mean, you've had experience in working with a lot of those within the soft space. In those types of uh, situations and stuff. Is it kind of expanded from the the norm in terms of, you know, your average TBI here or there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, type of situations? And can, maybe can you elaborate for those guys that might still be in that space, either off-back of duty or currently living within that world? Uh, deployments might be different but uh, mm-hmm. in terms of volume and what the missions are, but... They still may be experiencing some of the same types of traumatic brain injury.
1: Totally, and there's—I mean, people have probably heard of this term by now, but operator syndrome. Yes. Um, so Chris Free, who he and his colleagues who wrote that paper and coined the term, he actually just came out with a book, by the way, on operator syndrome, and I think it's available for pre-order. I don't know that it's available until April of 2024, but for those interested in in reading more about it, um, you can you can look at that there um when it comes out but there is a a paper that describes kind of the symptoms i was just talking about and it's very common in the soft community tbi is also extremely common in the soft community and most people who have sustained tbis it wasn't during combat it was during training so i think it was like 85 percent of operators have had tbis during training and then probably other people have, or they've had more, whether it was through combat or even sports outside of, you know, just athletics when they were young or even as adults. And so TBI is very common in the soft community, but let's, let's remove TBI for just a second. If you look at the stressors associated with this profession, they're pretty significant. And I like to, I like the term operator syndrome because it gives us a name for what we're observing, this phenomenon that we're observing. And in order to do something about it, you have to categorize it so we're all sure that we're talking about the same thing. But I also think that it's it's um, a little too narrow because then it and it's a a lot of people start identifying with it. They're like, well, I, I must have operator syndrome. You know, like we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like, well, I have this thing, and now I, that you know, they they can internalize a diagnosis that's unhelpful. So I like to reframe operator syndrome in stress physiology terms, and that is um, uh, the, the term that it's related to is called allostasis, which is the ability to maintain uh, stability through changing environments. And you can kind of think about it like like homeostasis, if it's a simpler term. But it's a dynamic thing. So it's meant to be, hey, the system gets perturbed and somehow we find our way back to a dynamic equilibrium that's um, appropriate for the conditions at that time. And this is a normal thing with stress. We have stress constantly. You have physical stressors, you have environmental stressors, you have psychological stressors. This is normal. We human beings deal with this every day. And we have a stress response system that is designed to help us adapt and be resilient in the face of these stressors. But when you look at certain professions like special operations and you know being an operator, but even some first responders deal with this. Um, when you look at the stressors that they're dealing with in all these different categories, psychological, physical, environmental, you see all of a sudden the amount that starts to pile up and your body's ability, the stress response system's ability to bounce back from that, all of a sudden it gets pushed and it's starting to come back to baseline and then there's another stressor that assaults the system. And it's like pushed a little further and then it starts to bring things back and then there's more stressors. And before you know it, things are so far from baseline that the stress physiology system is not able to bring things back and you start to have severe dysfunction and dysregulation of normal processes. That's separate from TBI. TBI ends up contributing to this stress that you see. It's a very potent physical stressor. Um, but you would have this stuff happening without a TBI. But then when you add that to the mix, now you've got the similar symptoms showing up from this stress physiology issue that you see with TBI. But now you've got both things happening. So it's it's even more impactful And you really—I mean—you see people. You know, the list of symptoms from operator syndrome are exactly the ones that I just mentioned, plus a whole other plethora. Um, And unfortunately, suicide rates in this community are through the roof. And and there's, you know, this this understanding that a lot of these things we're talking about are huge contributors to that. So um, it's really important for people to pay attention. And and to your point where you're saying before about you know, sometimes you don't notice it and it's, it's like these people are speaking from this place of anger and you can just see the irritability. It's like a slow boil for you, the individual, maybe you don't notice it, but when people around you are telling you that you're different or that things are off, I know it sucks to hear that. Nobody wants to, I mean, that that's hard for anyone to, to hear truth, like truthfully and, um, own that but but pay attention to that trust the people around you who care about you and if they're saying this stuff um, that would be a time to start looking into maybe understanding what's going on getting some help because um it there are ways through it just like there's a long road that led you here there are ways back there are ways to get healthy there are ways to address a lot of this stuff but you have to work at it and um and I, I want people to have hope in that, but it takes some, some effort and you've, you've got to, you, it's not going to just go away. You've got to address it.
0: You talked about the stressors, then you talked about the TBI, you talked about, well, then you take the individual that's going through all those different types of things. And I think about like um, when you start trying to diagnose it and, and support it or fix it. There may be, like we just talked about, alcohol, uh, certain medication. They're not eating healthy. They're Mm -hmm. not exercising right. So you're going to have to go through and start removing everything to bring it back, I'm assuming, to some symbol of baseline, of normal, as much as you can, and then start adding in and seeing what is actually contributing to the problem. I would would
2: think it would be like a diet by deletion, right, where you go, like, water diet. Okay, I'm good with water. Let's add some bread. Okay, I'm good with bread. Add some milk. Oh. Oh. I can't eat milk. So we we'll go back and I think something I mean, you're like going that. through a lot of this yourself. Yeah. Like it was, when it came to one, like sleep hygiene was huge. Um, that was one that they really hammered on it was like, how much sleep are you getting? Are you sleeping? Well, yeah, you were in bed for eight hours, but how long do you sleep? Mm-hmm. Then the sleep studies and all this other stuff. But that being said, like you had to find your baseline again, you had to re you had to re find out what's normal for you. Mm-hmm. And there's sure. only one way to do that. And that's start removing things. And seeing where your body's actually functioning, where your brain's functioning and what's happening. So I was want to ask about environmental stressors. Like what are some environmental stressors other than being in the military and <laughs> in everything that they should be watching out for?
1: Yeah, well, when I say environmental stressors, I'm talking like things in the environment. So... Um, especially this is relevant to an operational environment, but like altitude, heat, stress, mm-hmm. cold stress, um, toxins in the environment, yeah. you know, 107 is yeah. leading the charge in this. So we are all very aware of mm-hmm. things that are toxic in the environment, whether it's um, in garrison or on deployments or whatever, there are things that are uh, affecting your health, the water you're drinking, the plastics, like all of these things um, from the environment can contribute to, um, these, this, the stressors, but they can also cause direct damage. I mean, some of these things are uh, damaging to your DNA or, you know, just depends on what it is. So, um, those are kinds of the environmental types of things. And then the the physical stressors are going to be, you know, like the movement type stuff. So if you're working out intensely, like movement is good and it's healthy, but are you, are you trying to kill yourself in the gym every day? Is that maybe counterproductive, you know, Mm -hmm. like let's be honest. And then, um, Lack of sleep could be another physical stressor. A traumatic brain injury could be another type of physical stressor. Um, And then you have the psychological ones, which in today's world, uh, even outside of the military, I mean, people are not okay. They're dealing with all kinds of uh, all kinds of things that are, you know, it could be family, it could be health, your health or a family member's health. It could be financial stress, job issues, uh, lack of purpose, lack of meaning. You talk about this with transition and getting out of the military you know, you start to have some of these other things come up and, and those activate the exact same system that a lion chasing you down the road is, mm-hmm. is activating, you know, and all of these things are addressing our, our physiology mm-hmm. and in a way where you can start to see when you're looking at it this way of like, Whoa, I'm, I'm adding all these things up pretty quick. And so I always tell people, Look at what's causing stress in your life. If there are things that you can actually eliminate and get rid of, do it. You know, And just get, there's some things that you can't. Like psychological stressors can be pretty difficult to eliminate. But if you can address anything in your environment or the physical stressors, maybe do yoga once a week instead of a soul-crushing workout at the gym. Like balance that a bit. Um, that's the, the best place to start. And then you know, to your point about the elimination stuff, I always tell people, try to choose things that you can stick with. Like don't overwhelm yourself and say you have to like make all these, yeah, Yeah. make all the changes overnight because you're never going to stick with that. And then you're going to beat yourself up about being, you know, terrible. And so you got to pick things that, that you can sustain and add on to as time goes and start small. That's, that's the best way.
0: I'm I'm finding it challenging. You mentioned the plastic and everything. I'm finding it so challenging every time I turn on like social media uh, and start noticing all of these different things that could go wrong with your body because of stuff that you're inhaling or you're drinking. You know what I mean? It's like, how today are we supposed to even uh, survive in this environment? And then especially someone like you're talking about that already is um i I, I guess it's not necessarily predisposed but you've you've got so many things that are going on in your body already that's unhealthy from tbis post-traumatic stress that you add all these other things that's now being uh described out there
1: and it can be overwhelming and uh, you start to think like, well, I can't, like, I'm not doing any of this right. Like even for people who listen to Andrew Huberman's podcast, you're like, shit, I didn't get my 20 minutes of sun today. I'm going to be depressed all day. Right. You know, like there's these protocols to life (laughs) where we start to micromanage everything we do and we judge it. And it's like, well, I didn't do the thing today or I did the thing I wasn't. supposed. and it's like the, the stress around doing it quote unquote, right can be worse for you than if you were to relax a bit about it. And so I'm saying this, it's it's both, right? It's like, be conscious as best you can and make changes where you can. Don't let it ruin your life to where you can't enjoy, like you're thirsty and you need to drink some water and there's a plastic bottle sitting there, drink the, you know, drink the water, it, you're gonna be okay. So there's a balance to it and we all have to find the balance that works for us, um, I I try to be as mindful as I can be about these things. Eliminate what I can, and then I just let it go. And and there are times when you're gonna have to deal with things that maybe you're not the best thing in that moment, but um, stressing about it might make it worse.
0: Yeah. You know, they talk more and more. I guess I hear now of like how important eight hours of sleep is, and not just eight hours, but preparing yourself for that sleep. And you got
2: to do the three, two, one, Rob. Three, two, one. Three, two, one. Three hours exercise, two hours eat, one hour no blue light. Yeah. So I mean, that's it. A- I, that's a. That's a that's <laughs> You're a going plan. to bed at eight. You better be working out at five. You know what See, I mean? <laughs> I know. I know.
0: I know. Angela's got you like on a uh, on a I pattern wish. and everything. You probably have a, a whole uh, no. That was agenda. A, that
2: was like the first thing the sleep hygiene lady told me was three, two, one. Is it before you go to bed? Three, two, one. Three hours before you go to sleep, you need to exercise. Two hours to eat. One hour no electronics, mm-hmm. no no blue light, nothing. I like hmm.
1: that. I also tell people to uh, like if they're going to do a sauna or something like that like do it, doing that closer to bedtime, because there's, um, in order for sleep to be triggered, mm-hmm. there needs to be a drop in body temperature. Mm-hmm. So you think, well, sauna's gonna raise it. It does, but it, when it comes back down, that's the signal to sleep. So mm-hmm. if you can get yourself hot or warm.
0: Like a really hot shower or hot bath.
1: Yeah, soak in the bath or you know whatever that might be, a little bit before, like an hour or so mm-hmm. before bed, give yourself some time to let that temperature come back down, make your room nice and cold climb into bed and and hopefully that can help. So that's an easy thing just as an assist. But all of those things that you mentioned are also great.
2: Look at me. Sleep therapist. <laughs> yeah. Meditation. Meditation. I know
0: you're big into meditating, doing yoga, those Mm -hmm. types of things. And
2: yeah,
1: starting small, laying a foundation. And, you know, sometimes you do start to have these wins where you notice like, oh, my God, I did sleep well last night or whoa, I woke up and I was super happy today. And, you know, like you'll start to notice that. But sometimes it doesn't happen overnight and people are like, oh, it's not working. I'm not going to do it. And so I just encourage people to pick a couple things. And, and make a contract with yourself where you're like, OK, I can stick with this, but I'm going to stick with it for a set period of time. And if I'm still not noticing a difference, um, maybe I'll try something else, or maybe I'll do something else. And um, But you've, you've got to give it time. I mean, this stuff, it took a long time to get where you are today in, in this physiological state that you're in. Um, you didn't get here overnight and you're not going to be you know reversing that overnight so you just got to pick some things and and constantly build the foundation and have some discipline around it and um you know it's it's just a process we all have to do it i mean this isn't no one's free from this kind of thing we all have this stuff we've got to work on
0: so i'm going to switch gears because Right now, we had some people on the podcast that talked about this, uh, going down and trying to find healing in South America mm-hmm. and um, you know, exploring different opportunities, whether it's Mexico or whatever the case, where they can go through programs that are not legal here in America uh, for us to do a lot of those things here. You experienced some of these yourself, and then you've also um, know loved ones and friends and stuff that have also done some of the same things. Um, what have you seen in terms of the the benefits and what's the storyline there that's really people should take away?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'll couch this with just my experience with it. So I um, found out about psychedelics and in particular ay- ayahuasca through uh, a ranger friend of mine back in like 2018. And I had no idea what it was. And he seemed to have great benefit from it. And Definitely noticed some changes, and I was like, "Huh, what is this about?" Because this is interesting to me that this, you know, he was dealing with this stuff, and now he seems to be like a new person in this in this after period. So I started doing some research and um, realized that there was actually research on psychedelics, but ayahuasca in particular that showed. Pretty incredible things from a neuroscience standpoint. I was like, "Whoa! How am I just hearing about this? Like, why am I not? Why haven't haven't I known about it?" And so I contacted the organization that he went with, which is Heroic Hearts Project, and um, we got to talking. And I ended up becoming their director of research. Um, and we started a it was initially a gut microbiome study in veterans with PTSD and looking at how ayahuasca impacted symptoms, but maybe. Was that through the gut, and we're actually um, wrapping that up, and hopefully we'll have a publication out soon about that, which is pretty exciting. Um, years later, of course, it takes a long time, but um, through that, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm really curious what this entails. It's, it's a traditional Peruvian. I mean, ayahuasca has uh, comes from the, um, the Amazon essentially. So places in Brazil and Peru and, and elsewhere where this has been a traditional, um, ceremonial practice for a long, long time. Um, we're talking, you know, probably millennia at this point. And, um, I didn't really know much about it, and so I wanted to understand what this what this is like. And I also felt like from my own perspective, if I'm going to be doing research on this or talking about it, I should have an experience with it. And I've had my own struggles with addiction and um, an eating disorder for a very long time and all kinds of my own mental health struggles and behavioral struggles that were tied to... Who knows, brain injuries, trauma. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint why we end up the way that we end up. We always wanna look back and be like, that was the reason. But for many of us, it's sort of like, does it, does it even matter at some point, right? Um, but I was dealing with these things and was like, you know, I, I'm still struggling in a lot of ways myself and I don't understand why and I've tried all these different methods. I'm curious around what this might be able to help me with too. At, from a different perspective, not not military. Um, so I went with a group of veterans, a lot of rangers in this group, good, really good friends of mine, and um, we went down and participated in. It was a week long program, um, three ayahuasca ceremonies, and it's really hard to describe, but it is um, it's in, it's a pretty incredible experience. It definitely shifts your perspective on everything in life, on yourself on your problems, on the way that you look at the world, and there seems to be a really powerful antidepressant effect afterwards. And it's being studied, so ayahuasca is being studied in clinical trials in Brazil and and I think Spain currently. Um, But all these psychedelics, these serotonergic psychedelics that act on the serotonin system, so we're talking LSD and psilocybin, um, DMT, ibogaine, these, these different substances that you guys may have heard of they seem to impact the serotonin system, and they all do it in a little bit of a different way. Um, But there seems to be great promise in helping people see things differently and reframe trauma or their experience, and there's a powerful antidepressant effect for a lot of them. So I, and I saw some of my friends, I mean, I had a couple of friends that were on the, the, the last, leg that they had i mean they were they were like if this and this isn't the best mentality to go down there with but for them just being honest about it they were like if this doesn't work i don't know what i'm gonna do like not in a good place and came out of that just completely different perspective on things and like i'm happy to be alive i'm grateful and i want to be here kind of mentality um It's hard, it's really hard work. A lot of times people will have very difficult experiences when they do this that if not done in the right setting, or with the right people or at the right time could actually be really harmful. So it's not just, again, like, you know, there's a lot of uh, narratives in in the veteran space, especially about psychedelics these days as being a silver bullet of, I was dealing with all this stuff and then all I needed was to go to Peru and do this, this, you know, be in the ceremony and then all of that reversed. And I wish I could tell you that my own struggles with addiction and my eating disorder and all of that disappeared after that, but they didn't. So I'm, I'm saying that to say these things are powerful and they can be helpful, but they don't necessarily like fix you or quote unquote reverse everything that you're dealing with. They provide a new perspective on things and a window of opportunity to make better choices. So Um, I've heard it described before that, especially with addictions or patterned thinking, like negative thinking, beating yourself up and having a really harsh inner critic, wanting to be different, but not being able to make those changes, those patterns the repetitive thinking or the the addictions the more you do it the more ingrained it gets it's like riding a bike on in mud and you create a rut and the more you ride in that same rut the deeper it gets and then one day you're like hey i want to go over there and you try to turn but you're so deep in the rut it's like you can see where you want to go but you can't go that's like our behavior over time whether it's thoughts or actually actions Um, physical actions. It gets really difficult because we've done something for so long to, to make a change. What psychedelics seem to do is smooth out those ruts. There's a brief period of time where we have the ability to do it differently. And that's a really promising thing from a neuroscience standpoint and from a psychology standpoint. That's huge. And people can take advantage of that in that after period. But if you don't do anything differently and you just go back to your same behavior it the ruts go right back to where they were and you're the same person and maybe it's even harder now because you had a glimpse of how good it could be and what how free you could be and then you come back and you're dealing with the same stuff again so it can be super challenging um so i want to say that there's a lot of promise and people are studying these substances and clinical trials for treatment resistant depression and ptsd there's a study that maps is doing with mdma and they're looking at um, MDMA assisted psychotherapy in veterans with PTSD and and they've had incredible results. But a lot of the clinical trials focus on psychotherapy as being the main treatment and the psychedelics are the tool that provides um, I guess better access or enhances the psychotherapy. So for those of us who grew up very like closed off and, you know, like stoic and out of touch with feelings and all these things. Sometimes psychedelics can be used to open that up and provide access to places you don't want to go or wouldn't normally have be able to go. And you can do that in a therapeutic setting and again, reframe or change your perspective on life in a way that's actually really adaptive and helpful. So the clinical trials right now are, are looking at this stuff as a tool to be used in psychotherapy, not a tool that's going to do everything on its own. But Heroic Hearts Project, you know, they're not doing psychotherapy, but what they're doing is providing coaching. So people like me will help people ahead of time to um, prepare, and then help them integrate the process afterwards to make sure that they're putting good actions into place and doing things that are supportive of the changes that they want to make. Um, but you do hear a lot, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have heard success stories in the veteran community of, of people saying that this changes their lives or it saved them. And 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 I, I think that that's valid. I mean, it's happening. I just also want to caution people that that's not a guarantee and you still have to do a lot of really hard work. This isn't going to fix everything, but it can be a really powerful tool if you're ready um but you know there are people who don't necessarily want to go down this path and don't feel like you can't also achieve the same outcomes outside of psychedelics too i don't want to have people be like well i don't want to do that and am i like not going to be able to get there because of that like absolutely you can through other means but this just accelerates that process i guess if that's a good way to put it
0: so the way i've heard it described is that it often like creates neural pathways or changes the route, so to speak, is how it's described. You know, um, you know, you may have been right now. It may have been routed a specific way. You know, I'm going from here to Washington along certain interstates, but all of a sudden, ways or Google Maps says, you know, turn here and reroute you into a different path that's less congested would you say that it does a lot of that in terms of the process or it's more of a rarity that occurs? Yeah,
1: I would say that it definitely does. I mean, there are really cool neuroscience studies out there that show under the influence like of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, for example, you have this increase in global connectivity in the brain. So parts of the brain that don't normally talk to each other are now talking to each other. And it The theory is that it's providing some flexibility in the ways that we think about things and process things. Whereas, before, you know, say somebody presents you with a problem, you see two solutions. When under the influence of psilocybin or something like that, or in the period afterwards, somebody asks you the same question, now maybe you see 10 solutions. And you just see things differently, you connect the dots differently, and that can be really powerful for making positive changes in life, or like to your point, going in that other direction. And um, it's it's something that is a pretty unique experience. You know, you talk about, um, talk to people who are really long time meditators who have had, um, just years and years of practice they can seem to tap into the same sort of mechanism as well but that's not usually accessible to the majority of us who sit down with like headspace for five minutes so psychedelics can be a powerful tool for achieving that faster um, for the average the average human and for those who have a real problem with with depression or even with um, you know i worked with a lot of guys who and some women who had really um, strong uh, barriers up for self-love and connection with other people. And it was just a completely foreign concept to them. They didn't like they might have had an idea in their head of what that might be like. And like most things, we, we can kind of conceptualize it, but until you experience it in your physical body, it doesn't, it's just a it's a concept. You don't really own it. You don't have wisdom around it. And sometimes with psychedelics you get to actually have a real experience with something and feel it in your body where it clicks and you're like oh my god i totally understand i get that and and love especially with um certain psychedelics especially like mdma there that can be a really powerful tool for helping people access that um, connection with themselves but then the connection to their loved ones or complete strangers or the earth or whatever it might be. And it's, um, I, you know, can they get there outside of that? Yeah, but how long will that take for some of these people? And, and um, you know, they'd have to have the right therapist and really actively work on this. And, of course, you can get there. But this is a way, again, it, it takes concepts and turns it into, like, a felt sense. That's, that's really powerful. So... I, I really like these tools for that.
0: I've got two questions. One would be related to describing a little bit more about the actions or the work that an individual has to take uh, when they return from these types of situations. And then the second question would be about what are they're just not able to, they're, out of the military and they're employed in an environment where this is just not going to be possible as much as they want to go, or they're currently on active duty and they want to find a way that maybe is not psych- uh, psychedelics or anything like that. But like you said, there are opportunities that are available. What 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 would those be, and maybe what does that path look like?
1: Mm-hmm. So for people who want to make the most of this afterwards. that's the question. I'm kind of like, what do you do afterwards? Um, you, you know I think for a lot of people, having um, support in your immediate environment with um, whether it's a spouse or other family members or friends who know what you're doing and are there to support you on your journey that's super important. So you're going to be making changes in life and before you even go, if, if you're in relationship with anybody, when you change, they are forced to change in some way too. And discussing what that's gonna be of the ideal life of, hey, when I come back, I really wanna make these changes. That's not always easy to do with like a partner, for example. Um, Having those discussions ahead of time are really important though, because if you come back and you're like, I'm so motivated to do all these things, but your environment is the same and maybe unhealthy, um, and it's, it's crushing you, and that was part of the reasons that you had struggles to begin with, if you come back to that environment, it can be really challenging. So you really have to make sure that your space is set up well, that you, you know, at work, you've got some idea around how you're gonna be able to show up in this new improved version of you that you wanna be um, showing up as, and then with your, your significant other or your kids or whatever, your friends. Um, you know, alcohol is a big thing that you have to cut out prior and after for a period of time, sometimes caffeine too. And that can be challenging for people, especially if people are like, hey, I actually don't want to go do that at all anymore. Um, But their friend group is like, oh, man, you know, like, come on. And like, you know, especially in certain communities, people kind of tease each other a little bit about that. Um, So, Knowing that ahead of time, knowing that you're going to be different and want to be different and make changes, you have to think about how that's going to play out in all these different arenas in life and be prepared for that so it doesn't blindside you and that you don't slip back into old ways of being. Um, And having people in your life who support you and are reminding you and holding you accountable like, hey, you said you were going to do these things. And I see you don't want to do it today, but you said you were going to do it. Like that's really, really important. Um, journaling is a big thing for measuring progress, so I always encourage people to journal when they come home and and look at where where things go. And you're probably gonna, you know, they, they call it a honeymoon phase, but it it wears off sometimes, and then you might feel down again. You might have struggles. I mean, this is a normal human thing. You're never going to be on cloud nine for the rest of your life. So you're going to slide backwards sometimes. Know that that's coming and be prepared for it. So when it happens, you're not like, oh, shit, it didn't work. Or I'm just like I was before. You can open your journal and be like, actually, I'm not like I was before. I might be having a hard day, but look at all this progress I've made. So that's really important. And I think that's the thing that people overlook the most. They're just like, I feel so good. I don't need to like worry about that. I'll deal with it when I deal with it. And then all of a sudden, they have nothing in place, no structure. Mm-hmm. And it's like a disaster.
2: (laughs) Now, is that like some of the emotional sensitivity that I've heard about? Like with some people coming back from those experiences, like they're like uber sensitive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're a bit raw afterwards for most people, like things. I mean, I, I remember coming back and like, I cried at the airport, like literally leaving that, that next day. And I was just like overwhelmed. And it wasn't like sadness or joy it was just like the the overwhelm of being alive Uh, and and, uh, airports are busy there's a lot of stimulation but it's like you're you're very raw and emotional and that can be a really good thing if you have a partner that understands and is or kids or you know friends that understand and they're willing to meet you there Um, but it can be really uncomfortable and sometimes harmful if you come back as this uh, open person willing to connect and the people in your life are like Ah, Get out of here. I don't want, you know, like that. That can actually be really painful when you're like ready for that and these people are um, completely disconnected and and pushing that away because you don't have anywhere to to go with it then. So you need to find a way to allow that to continue to flow because if you don't, you'll shut it down and you'll go back to feeling blocked as well. And that, once you've had that open and openness and freeness, like that can be really traumatic to have to shut that down again. So I encourage people to like, you know, maybe it's a coach, but like identify people in your life where you can show up fully in that way and feel free to do that without being shut down or judged or, or, or whatever. So that's another piece that, you know, often gets overlooked, but, um, and then the other question about what do you do if you're active duty? Yeah. I mean, so hopefully, I mean, at this point, MDMA is likely to become legal this year or next year. And that would be legal in a clinical setting in a therapeutic like psychotherapy way. So you could, if you're depressed, for example, or dealing with PTSD, potentially go to a clinician and get a prescription for MDMA assisted psychotherapy and and could potentially do that. Um, so that is, these things are on the horizon, that they will be changing in the future. I'm confident in that, but we're not there yet. So what do people do? Um, obviously, if you're on active duty or in certain professions, um, I have a friend who's a federal agent, um, can't, you know, can't do any of this stuff. So there are ways to do s- similar kinds of work. So ketamine is one option. Ketamine is completely legal. And there are clinics that do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or like psycholytic therapy. So the idea with that being that you might take a low dose of ketamine and have a therapy session with that on board so you're able to access some things that may normally be blocked. Now, ketamine is not a psychedelic. Um, It's a completely different mechanism of action. However, it does seem to have some similar effects in that it it can um, kind of break down these walls that people might normally have up to memories or emotions and things that are typically stored away pretty tightly. So it can be useful for that and it, in an actual therapeutic session, but there are also ways that people do it where they have uh, a really high amount on board and they send them off on their little journey with some eye shades and some music, and then they process it with a coach or a therapist after the fact, Um, those can be really powerful. I have some friends who swear by it as saving their lives. Um, I have other friends who have done it who had some hard times and were like, I'm not sure that that was helpful. Other people did it and they were like, yeah, it was helpful for a little while, but I have to go do it every week and that's not feasible. So ketamine can be a little expensive. Um, So for people on active duty, that is an option and these clinics are popping up all over, but a word of caution that Anything in this space these days, people are trying to make money off of it because it is, you know, up and coming and it is lucrative. So you've got to really vet your people um, and trust the folks that you're working with. The other thing, depending on what people are dealing with, so um, you know, it's a different approach for different reasons, but with this sympathetic overdrive and this, um, you know, high activation, high stress response and um, being, being hypervigilant and on and unable to sleep and, and these really intense like anxiety type symptoms that you can get when you have your stress response system overloaded, sometimes people can find benefit with something like a stellate ganglion block. Um, and that can be something that provides relief. Now, it doesn't fix the problem it can buy somebody a period of time of relief so they can make better changes and you're nodding your head. So you, it sounds like you have very personal. Yeah, yeah,
2: I've had one. Um, that was what actually my first two episodes as a guest was about, Yeah, was pre SGB and post SGB. Okay. Um, it is not a silver bullet. Right. It does help symptoms. It takes work after the fact. Mm-hmm. And that's the big thing is it is simply step one, mm-hmm. two and a million step journey.
1: Yeah. And when yeah. people are, I mean, when you're spending all of your waking energy, holding yourself together, just trying to manage your day to day, which is a lot of people. If you could do something that bought you a breather, like that would be a lot, you know, like that would be really powerful. And so for some people, a stellate ganglion block could be that thing. Ketamine therapy could be that thing. Um, for some people who have, pretty intense trauma tied to like a focal event like a car accident or um something that's very clear like had a beginning and end um sometimes emdr therapy can be something like that where it provides some relief where you're EMDR not emdr
0: is the ma- uh, electromagnetic directional
2: um, uh
1: it's eye movement uh desensitization and reprocessing so that's where you're in therapy and and they'll kind of whoops touching the microphone that's right where you're where you're tracking your eyes are moving laterally or you're doing bilateral tapping things like that where you're it's it's very um seems weird but there's actually it's rooted in neuroscience so essentially when you're recalling a traumatic memory and you're doing this bilateral eye movement there's an access to this traumatic memory that was stored maybe improperly, like in post-traumatic stress disorder, sometimes these, these traumatic memories get stored in a way where they seem like they're still happening in real time and you're hypervigilant and you have nightmares and flashbacks and all these, these symptoms associated with PTSD. If you can access that memory and repackage it in a way that's a cohesive unit and then your brain is like, oh, this is a thing, discrete thing that happened in the past. It's not happening now your physical, physiological symptoms of feeling like it's still happening uh, subside. And EMDR, this lateral eye movement, again, Huberman explained this on a podcast once, but there's um, neuroscience pathways that are uh, neural pathways that are that can explain how this works. And it, it allows you to essentially repackage these traumatic memories. And so that can buy somebody real physical, like physiological relief from PTSD for a specific event. Now for people with like more chronic PTSD, it doesn't seem to work as well. But again, it's like, it's knowing yourself, knowing what is going on for you and then figuring out what is leading to all of these things that I'm dealing with? What are the tools out there that we know of? What's What do I start as a foundation? What are like the big heavy hitters, like a psychedelic approach or something like that? What are the things on a daily basis I need to do? What are the big powerful tools? How do I figure out the right plan forward for me as the individual? And it's gonna be different for every single person. And, that, and that's like the coaching that I do is all figuring that out with the person of your unique situation where are you how did you get here and then what are the things that we need to tackle in what order which tools are available how do we integrate the right tools at the right time and then let's create a plan and move forward with it and a lot of us unfortunately just have to be guinea pigs and figure out like like I've I've used myself as a guinea pig for a lot of this of just trying to figure out, well, how does this feel? What works for me? What doesn't? And then relay that to clients that I work with um, so I have a better understanding of maybe what could help a, a unique person or, or not. Um, but just because it worked for somebody else doesn't mean it'll work for you or, or vice versa. So um, listen to people's stories. Absolutely learn from them. And know that you're going to kind of have to create your own path forward. But share that story because again that could could help other people in the process.
0: Well, and I've watched you Kyle in in terms of like, you know, the Stella ganglion block prior to that year adjustment in your eating habits yep. and sleep and those types of things and trying to do the gut health uh, improvements yep. and um you know vitamins and working out and all that type of stuff and then like i said the stellar ganglion block and then it sounds like you know there's this defrag thing sounds really cool with the emdr uh which would allow you then to potentially um like you know maybe that's the next step is that you kind of move that over and then maybe it's ketamine and then, so it sounds like there's there's like you even with this there's no magic pill there's no like map that says okay for you Kyle you go this path mm-hmm. um it might be a little bit of now we're going to turn the screw to the right a little bit no that didn't work all right well we're going to adjust the left screw now to the left and see and playing around with that yeah. <laughs> a little bit and maybe that's again my pea brain trying to process this but yeah uh, yeah I
1: mean and and I think people should look at it with some curiosity and like uh, a little bit of an adventure because it, it usually is. It's like, well, it, I tried this for six weeks and didn't like it. Or I had a client once who was very um, kind of uh, more dogmatic Christian beliefs and yoga was absolutely off the table. He was like, no way, man, I'm going to be indoctrinated with some crazy, you know, I don't know. And I was like, no, man, it's secular. Like if there's no, we don't have to talk about anything religious, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to have somebody like jump into your third eye and possess that's your soul. <laughs> Say namaste right now. Yeah. You know, but like for him, it was like a non-starter and I was like, okay, that's not a tool for you. Cool. Like what else do we have available to us? And I think people just kind of have to go through it like that, of kind of figuring out what, um, one, what they have access to, because some of these things aren't even available in your own area, so you've got to think about that too, or maybe it's cost prohibitive, or, you know, there's a lot to consider with all of this, but you do kind of have to um, create your own your own path forward with it. But. So
2: that guy didn't opt for the drum circle therapy or anything like that either? No. <laughs> no. <Okay>.
1: no, sir. <laughs> Did not. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I think the other thing too, uh, one other piece of this that I really want to emphasize is that you can do all of the tools. You can do everything available to address your physical and potentially your mental health too. Um, but if you don't have a community or people that you're close with, it doesn't have to be a huge community. It could be your spouse and a couple friends or your kiddos or you, you know, or just just friends or maybe it's your extended family, but we all need people. And you can do all the other stuff, but if you don't have people in your life, and if you don't have a sense of purpose, what, what you're here for, what you're doing, um, those other things are gonna help, but they're only gonna get you so far. And I would also add for those who are spiritual, a spiritual connection of some kind too. That's also you know big for a lot of people. And if, if you're lacking those things as human beings, we're going to not be optimal. That's just the way we're wired. So I also encourage you to look at those parts of your life too, and see how else you can address that. And sometimes when you get those things right, um, the physical and mental start to improve too. And then you don't have as big of a laundry list of things that you need to address, or maybe they're more addressable. So It all goes hand in hand like you know we're not we're not machines as much as people would like to think that that we are we are human beings and this stuff is complex, but it is workable and there are lots of tools and solutions out there, but we we've got to explore it we've got to be willing to get out there and explore and ask for help when needed too.
0: I think that's awesome the way you kind of laid that out. I mean, I and having been in the life sciences space myself after getting off of active of duty and learning a lot about um genomics or different DNA makeup and stuff and especially about certain drugs and receptors and how about e- each human is different and in terms of what works well. Somebody might work great with Tylenol, another person might have to use ibuprofen or another person has to use uh something a little bit more uh heavy and and so we think about those things in in our own life but we don't we're not thinking about it in the way you're describing of hey not everything is going to fit each person the same way so kyle may go through this program you may hear him on the podcast tell his story about getting the uh, Stella ganglion block and and having huge success another person may go there and go, didn't work mm-hmm. nothing happened yeah you know I, I don't feel any results yet a third person may go i didn't have to do this for like three years mm-hmm. it lasted that long and i've heard you know uh, uh, still ganglia and black lasting like, you know, 30 days for some mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Uh, we've had several people that said, yeah, I had to take it, but sh- man, it was like quick. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah. And I've noticed with a lot of folks that I've worked with, um, if it gets bad enough, you're, you're willing to put in the work We're we're weird creatures and that we often have to hit rock bottom and maybe more than once before, We're like, oh, okay, this isn't working. I gotta actually put some effort in or do things differently. And so that's normal it's unfortunate that we're that way but we are wired that way it is normal and um, i get it i mean i'm one of those people i've had my own path that's very similar to what you're describing i mean i'm sitting here talking about this stuff and it's not from a book Uh, this is my own personal experience too i've gone through all of this stuff and um, speak about it from a place of like true understanding so i get it and You know, I think the individual has to decide how bad do you want it? You know, how bad do you want to get better? And for some people, the effort part is hard, especially when you're depressed. You know, it's very hard to put the effort in, but that's where you have to ask for help. And, um, you know, you'll you'll start having the energy to do the things that you need to do. And sometimes it just takes time and age and sometimes it takes really hard circumstances and we're you know again because we're all different it'll it'll be different for each person what what brings them to that place of change but
0: I uh I want to say something not only thank you for coming all this way once again and stuff but people may listen to this episode and go all right hey um I am on social media we talked about that I want to know more about how I can um follow Kate learn more about your experiences, what you're doing, and you post amazing stuff. And we've made Thank connections you. on a number of different posts. Um, because it's, you know, we see it in our community. Yeah. And I've seen it and experienced some of these things within my own life. So getting a chance to see even some of the memes you share, uh, some of the health stuff that you post about, you know, that makes you think. Um, and, and you do some amazing posts on that, you know, where you get not only to the science of it, but you give a lot of thought uh, provoking stuff. So how can people learn more about your journey, and if they want to follow you, and not only that, but some of the things you shared here in the podcast?
1: Um, yeah, I guess probably the easiest way uh, to to see what I'm up to or get a hold of me is Instagram. I'm Doc Pate, D-O-C. Period, P-A-T-E. And then um, if people want to email me and reach out and have specific questions, you know, I I don't always have the answers, but I know a lot of really smart people and people with huge hearts that are often willing to help, so um, I'm great at making connections. And if you want to email me, it's docpate at proton.me. Um, so that's another easy way. And then I, I'm trying to work on a website. I'm not a, like a website person. And social media, like all I have is Instagram. I'm not one of those people
0: that does that well. You haven't blogged or anything? Oh,
1: I, I've been encouraged to, and I really want to, but I also yeah. um, am trying to figure out like how to do that. I don't know if people out there know how to make websites. Rob,
2: she's saving the world one <laughs> page at a time. You have to leave her alone. She
1: <laughs> can't have time to blog. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm probably going to make a website at some point and then yeah. have like a you know blog and stuff like that. Because the there's a lot that we, I want to... We got a guy for the Yeah, website. you got a guy? Yeah, okay, perfect, guy. yeah. Um, there's a lot that I want to share in Instagram, you know, your 2000, word char- or your 2,000 character posts. It's That's just, it's not enough for me. Um, so there's more I want to share on all these topics and even my own personal journey that I don't always share as much on social media. Um but hopefully in the near future, I'll, I'll get into that more. So, do well, you know, and are.
0: nowadays uh, for what you're talking about, you have to give up a lot of your personal self and we're not all comfortable in doing that when you're out there And some people who want to do that. Yeah. God bless them. But uh, for some of us, we want to remain private. So, sure. but I appreciate what you do share because yeah. what you are putting out there is helpful information and it's what really connected us uh, together and stuff and trying to get you on the show is, you know, what you were putting out there. Um, people mentioning your name, obviously, and, and those types of things and the stuff that you're doing out there. You mentioned, of course, you know, the nonprofit that you've worked with, but also just, you know, working in this space in the community, word of mouth travels. Mm-hmm. And so appreciate everything that you're doing out there within the community space as well.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I'm, honestly, it's like, it's, I couldn't have imagined being able to do what I do in this community. And. Um, all of the things I'm most passionate about, I get to do. And I work with like my best friends and, you know, I get to make incredible friendships and um, meet people like you guys. And I'm just um, so grateful that I get to do this stuff. So it's, it's a true blessing.